This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today is our year in review show. Later in the hour, Amy Willens reports on Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and Little Eric. Boy, did those kids get in trouble this year. First up, 2020, the year in politics and the decade in politics. For that, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? A question we will take up in a minute. And she produced the wonderful documentary this year, The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. It's on Peacock. We talked about it here. We reached her today in the San Francisco Bay Area. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Nice to be with you. Well, it's hard to remember the time before COVID, but some of the key political events of the year, the Democratic primaries, came early in the year before we knew how bad the pandemic was going to get. So return with us now to the Iowa caucuses, the beginning of the political season. The caucuses met on February 3rd. But the one black woman candidate, Kamala Harris, had already dropped out on December 3rd. Looking back on that day, it was a grim one, and especially for you personally, I know. Well, yeah, my daughter was uh, her Iowa political director. Um, uh, so it was, you know, shocking and sad. And uh, and I've known Kamala for a long time. I wrote the first major feature about her in 2003 when she ran for district attorney. Um, I didn't have a candidate. I wasn't endorsing, partly because of my daughter. But I liked her a lot. And um, one less woman was not a good thing to me. So and The talk at that point, the beginning of December a year ago, was that Kamala Harris was not polling well enough with black voters in South Carolina, and she wasn't polling well enough in her home state of California either. It seemed like Democrats wanted somebody else. But then on November 3rd, she and Joe Biden got more votes than any ticket in American history, 7 million more votes than Donald Trump. What happened to Kamala Harris in the 11 months between the time she dropped out of the primaries, really before they ever began, and her historic triumph as the first woman vice president? Well, I think she did everything right in a way that she couldn't quite manage uh, as, as a presidential candidate. You know, I think she stayed on good terms with everybody. You know, there's a lot of speculation that she could never be the the Biden's pick because she did attack him famously um, about his anti-busing stance. 
But, you know, she continued to be gracious to him, to his staff. You know, interestingly, I recall she did not endorse him with all the other folks. She waited for Elizabeth Warren to get out of the race to do that, I, I think, woman to woman. Um, that was part of her part of her reasoning. But, you know, she just she did, then did everything she was asked until COVID made it impossible to campaign in person, but or nearly impossible. And uh, it's easy to forget what a formidable political talent she was given the way she stumbled running for president. It just, it, it clearly wasn't her time. So this is her time. Now let's want to pull the lens back a little more. You wrote a memorable piece for The Nation a year ago on the last day of 2019 with the fabulous title, This Fucking Decade. The decade began with Obama taking office, you know, January 2009, and then what happened? And then we just had a, a backlash of, in some ways, unpredictable, but not necessarily proportions by white people and by the white right, fomented by a Republican Party that didn't used to have to rely as heavily on racism and decided that that was its, that was its strategy as early as 2012, if not in, in 2008. And so we started the decade enormously proud and happy that we had elected our first black president and we closed it with this monstrous racist in the White House and a Republican Party that was that had kowtowed to him for his whole four years. Uh, he was impeached, but he was acquitted by the Senate. Um, only Mitt Romney voted to convict him. And and we we you know we saw the rise of Fox News, a particularly virulent racial grievance version of Fox News, and you know it was evident pretty quickly as the decade began. Uh, and it was funny, you know, in President Obama's memoir, he writes about something that I actually wrote about at the time in real time. The fact that when he criticized the Cambridge Police Department. Um, for arresting Henry Louis Gates in his own home. He called it stupid or I'm forgetting, you know, just very mild criticism. And he called it, yeah, he called it stupid to arrest him in his own house. Yeah, but his poll numbers with white people cratered. They went from like the high 50s to, into, the, into the 40s and they never climbed above 50% again. And it was really, I remember watching it in real time and writing for Salon at that point, a piece called The Blackening of the President. And that, that as well as a few other controversies and Fox News is hammering his deep-seated, you know, anti-white racism. It happened in the course of a summer and, you know, he never recovered. And part of what, if I'm recalling correctly, I took issue with was something that, you know, it is still going on too much, but I think a year later, the media is better about it. And that is a kind of both siderism and, you know, there are extremists on both sides and a refusal to really call out racism when, you know, when it was evident, except by, for a while, a very few of us, the media complicity and all that was really painful to remember, read about, write about in real time uh, and and recap last year. But I feel like we could just, we could really almost rerun the piece this year. I might suggest that. So the media over the last decade have not, let us say, done their job, but there's still a more profound underlying question. This question that you posed in your book seven years ago, what's the matter with white people? As you show, this predates Trump. Trump was by far the most virulent anti-black 
candidate of the dozen or 20 or however many were running as Republicans in, in, in 2016. But uh, we still have to look at, at white America. I mean, not all of white America, not California, not New York City and so on, but a lot of white America. You've been thinking about this for a long time now. What do you think today? I don't like exit polls because in my experience, you know, when you get real precinct level, county level data a few months later, you find that the exit polls weren't correct. And this year, especially given the polling in general was terrible. I don't want to conclusively say that the percentage, for example, of white women supporting Trump actually went up. I'm not prepared to say that. But if it went down, it wasn't by much. Uh, and there, there's still this persistent sense there is a zero-sum approach to society where some people getting more means we're getting less. And, you know, we don't want our tax dollars to go to pay for those people. And therefore, we don't have our tax dollars necessarily helping ourselves. The, the capacity of Trump to convince, you know, working class white people that he was on their side or one of them continues to be astonishing. I think the premise of the uh, 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign and a lot of progressives and leftists still think this is we just need a, you know, a more full-throated approach to, you know, working class issues and class politics. And I, I think we need that for a lot of reasons, but I don't necessarily think that that it's the answer because you know even the things that Obama did that that primarily benefited white people didn't help Obama and when white people were given a real full-throated defense of white supremacy uh, and full-throated permission for racism a lot of people took him up on it you know so um, I still don't have an answer. If I had an answer, I would write a sequel. Um, but I think about it all the time, to be honest. Here we've talked about the Republican base. We've talked about the media. What about the Democrats over the last decade? How have they responded to what you call the carnival of racist bigotry the Republican Party was becoming over the last decade? Well, I mean, I think the Democratic Party has become much more diverse in that time, has embraced its status as the party of, uh, you know, people of color and women, but it also means we're a really big and fractious tent. And all those issues of gender and race and sexuality come into play. And then there's also issues of ideology. And, you know, we're ideologically a really big tent with Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin. So I, I, I think it's easy to fault Democrats for not doing this or that. But, you know, when you look at, at somebody like Nancy Pelosi, who has an incredibly diverse, in every sense of the word, caucus to keep together. It, it's its problems are obvious, but the solutions, you know, I don't know. I don't know that they're always as easy as you know, leftist pundits, including myself, sometimes like to like to think they are. Oh, just stand up, be tough. And there were a lot of tactical issues as well as ideological issues that that led 2020 to be a pretty much of a disappointment except you know in the most important way so you know i think we're going to be puzzling over and i i've tried to continue to cover it because it i think we have to understand what happened in november to do anything differently in in 2022 
we're not so much going to have Trump to kick around anymore, although he's still going to be kicking at us. And uh, I think there's going to have to be more of a reckoning with the, especially the ideological uh, diversity in the party. A year ago, uh, before the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, you wrote, quote, only Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren seem to see clearly the economic and social destruction wrought over the last decade. And yet, while Bernie Sanders won Michigan in, let's look at Michigan, in 2016, Biden won every county of Michigan in 2020. Why? Do you really have to ask? I mean, in 2016, Bernie Sanders was running against a woman, Hillary Clinton, uh, and in 2020, he wasn't. Uh, and so the arguments that people made at the time that I found frustrating that, oh, you know, Bernie beat her in, say, West Virginia. That means we're going to win back West Virginia if, if Bernie's our nominee. Well, Biden beat him. He beat him virtually everywhere in all those white working class places where people thought the, you know, the issue was Bernie's strong class appeal. The issue was really sexism and relatedly Hillary Clinton's baggage, uh, to, to put it that way. Um, so, you know, it was very frustrating. It was very frustrating to watch for a lot of reasons. So now let's talk about Biden over the last year. A year ago, uh, Joe Biden said in New Hampshire, a sentence that you picked up on, that he might pick a Republican running mate. He said, quote, there's still some really decent Republicans out there, close quote. Well, he did not pick a Republican running mate. Thank God. Uh, I think Biden has evolved uh, over the last four years and certainly over the last year. He was not my first pick. He was probably, he was maybe in my top five. But I think the the impact of the pandemic, the diversity of the party, the ideological diversity of the party, his capacity to form a strong bond with Bernie Sanders, which eluded Hillary Clinton, and that wasn't just about sexism. Um, they just didn't hit it off. And I think Biden worked harder at that. I think Biden, he still makes noises about, I, you know, I'm going to, you know, work with Republicans and maybe I'll put one in the cabinet. Thank God that hasn't happened. Temperamentally and, and historically, he is that guy. But I think he has learned his lesson partly from what happened to Barack Obama, but but specifically what's happened under Trump, that people that we once would have thought of as reasonably decent Republicans, you know, Lindsey Graham, the great friend of John McCain, you know, I'm not talking ideologically, but I am talking characterologically or in terms of a capacity to compromise or see value himself in working across the aisle. Um, I think that those people are gone. They're either literally gone, like John McCain, or their souls have been stolen, like Lindsey Graham. And Biden's not a stupid man. Um, he still makes some of the same rhetorical uh, feints or flourishes, but I think he knows what he's up against. And I think he wants to be the president for the moment. You know, he talks about his task as being more like FDR's, even than Barack Obama's. And, and that's a good thing. We're going to have to hold him to it and we're going to have to push him. But I'm I'm optimistic that he has grown and that, you know, Harris will be a good influence and that it will be a center left administration, not just a center administration. I hope I'm right. We're going to have to push him. 
Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thank you, John. Now it's time for the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Boy, did those kids get in trouble this year. For our Children's Hour Year in Review, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, best known for her work on Haiti, and a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. 2020 began with Don Jr.'s book Triggered on the bestseller list. He joins a family of authors. His mother, Ivana, wrote one. His sister wrote a couple. And, of course, his father is listed as the author of a monster bestseller, Trump Art of the Deal. Family of writers. It's wonderful. We think of Martin Amos and Kingsley Amos. We think of Alexander Coburn and Claude Coburn. And now we have Don Jr. and Donald Trump. Aren't we lucky? <laughs> the, litera- the literati at the top. That's what I like to say. Well, Don Jr.'s book, Triggered, has the subtitle, How the Left Wants to Silence Us, which makes it one of the few books whose subtitle was disproved almost as soon as the book was published. It was disproved on the author's book tour. Please explain. So Don Jr. went to UCLA, and uh, his book event was um, sponsored by a right-wing campus group that did not want to have a Q&A because they knew that although they are right wing, there was a further right wing group or a bunch of groups who wanted to uh, do what people often do at book talks, which is make speeches during the Q&A thing. And they were going to say all sorts of horrifying things and embarrass Don Jr. because they feel that the these these really fringe right wingers, although fringe may not be the right word anymore, we're going to spew, uh, you know, white, straight, uh, self-identifying as Christian, anti-immigration, homophobic, racist, anti-Semitic junk at Don <laughs> Jr. And that's not really how he wanted to um, present his book. So in, in effect, he was silenced by a right wing group, his book about being silenced by the left. He was silenced by the right. And he was really surprised. I mean, when you watch the video, it's as if he doesn't really know that this is the right wing trying to shut him down. He thinks it's the left wing and he lectures them. And then girlfriend Kimberly Guilfoyle gets up on her high horse. She lectures them, says, your parents won't be very proud of you, will they? As if they were little libtards, which they highly were not. It was a great moment of irony, but of course the Trump family doesn't understand irony, so. And what was scheduled to be a two hour event, Don left the stage after about a half an hour and just called it quits. He had to go, he was silenced, I'm so glad. Then the COVID hit and in February, sort of very early in in the pandemic, Don Jr. said, the Democrats want millions to die from the coronavirus. That was sort of provocative. That's been an ongoing sort of argument. (laughs) And the argument has always been they want millions understood Trump supporters, millions of Trump supporters to die. (laughs) But of course, that's not how it worked. Cities were hit hardest at the beginning. That's where uh, that's where the uh, Democratic strongholds are. And but this has been an ongoing uh, Trump trope. That's a good thing. A Trump trope. The younger generation has 
played quite a role in kind of spinning what the virus should mean to the Trump base. Don said this, the Democrats want to kill millions with this virus. And then Eric Trump suggested later on that the Democrats created the virus specifically to prevent Donald Trump from holding his electoral rallies. But of course, it didn't prevent a guy like Donald Trump from holding electoral rallies. First of all, he was standing more than six feet away from everybody at the rally, whereas everybody else at the rally who had come to love him were standing all together so that they could get sick. And then in April, when we were all locked down, Jared was put in charge of the administration's virus response. Huge job. What were his responsibilities? Well, he had to hand out um, contracts to companies to make PPEs, to make masks, to make ventilators. But he, instead of like competing them and doing them really fast and brilliantly, he handed them out to cronies. He hired young people who studied finance to run the response to the coronavirus instead of doctors, epidemiologists, and people who understood fast industrial uh, switches. And then he also shunned responsible and trusted health companies' offers of, uh, you know, virus, um, epidemiology, and also the uh, ventilators. And so we were left buying ventilators from China in the end. And to pursue that end of buying ventilators and other PPE, uh, Jared created something called Project Airbridge. How did Project Airbridge work? Project Airbridge enlisted private companies whose uh, names or which entities were not revealed by the Trump administration to make and bring in ventilators. And it was unclear who was going to get the money, but it was, you know, the U.S. budget that was paying for this without any transparency on who was getting the money. So, of course, one assumes uh, cronies and friends. And how successful was Project Airbridge and Jared's other uh, efforts to produce and distribute PPE to the states? It was basically a hugely inadequate uh, response that probably cost the lives not only of many patients, but of many frontline emergency medical responders, doctors and nurses, because they didn't have the proper uh, self-protective equipment. Jared was too busy getting Morocco to agree to peace with Israel to manage to get ventilators to hospitals in the United States. So that was part of the disaster of the Trump administration's virus response, along with all of Trump himself, you know, discouraging people from wearing masks. And then the Trump kids had various other events that brought them into the news. We had the memorable day that Ivanka carried the Bible across Lafayette Square. Heck of a story. Remind us of that one. So that was the day that there were protesters outside and Trump decided to tear gas them. They were perfectly peaceful. Trump decided to tear gas them. And then he walked across Lafayette Square to St. John's Church, unbeknownst to St. John's Church, which is a very anti-Trump church. And Ivanka followed him in her outfit with her giant white designer bag that apparently cost around $1,500. And out of the giant white designer bag, she plucked a, a <laughs> tiny little Bible and gave it to him. And there's a very funny meme um, on social media that shows Trump looking at the Bible as though he's never seen one before, <laughs> inspecting it as though maybe he could go on a date with it. And then 
opening it up and holding it very seriously. And Trump was asked by the by the press assembled, is that your Bible, sir? And what was his answer? That is a Bible. But from the way he looks at it, at it online, it, it looks like maybe he wasn't sure even if it was a Bible or what is a Bible. <laughs> and was it the Old Testament? I'm not sure that an Orthodox Jewish family is supposed to have a Christian Bible in their house or anywhere on their persons. And then there were a bunch of books about and by members of the Trump family. The most notable was Trump's niece, Mary Trump, who published a book called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Well, first tell us about Mary Trump. Who exactly is she? So Mary Trump is the daughter of Fred Trump Jr., Fred Trump Jr. is the oldest and unsuccessful son of Fred Trump, the patriarch of the Trump family. He had a lot of problems. He wasn't sure he wanted to go into the family business. Donald Trump was always like right behind him. I'll go into the family business, Dad. I'll. And, uh, and he became an alcoholic. And then he was sort of very ill for a long time. And then he was locked out of the family will with the collusion of his siblings. Um, and, and Mary... His daughter, therefore, was locked out of that will. But what she has is a fabulous amount of just like firsthand family knowledge about how the family operated and and about Donald Trump bullying and being bullied. And it's just a it's a really interesting book. And she also has a uh, Ph.D. in clinical psychology, which I guess makes her a doctor like Jill Biden. <laughs> um, <laughs> So most of this story is about how the patriarch crushed his oldest son, who then died miserably an alcoholic, and the number two son happily usurped his place. But the story of Donald Trump's childhood isn't such a happy one either, since his mother was hospitalized for like a year when he was, when the next kid was, after the next kid was born. So he was basically without his mother at what we all now know as a crucial developmental stage. Not only without his mother, but his father was around and the father was not a great parent. And eventually Donald Trump was sent off to military school. And um, Mary tells the story really well of how Donald Trump's dad would go up and visit him every weekend. <laughs> but it wasn't to be nice or because he cared. It was to monitor him and make sure he was doing what needed to be done to at least graduate from it so he could then get him into his next school. And so he became the son his father wanted. And what kind of son was that? Fred Trump was a very tough businessman and uh, wheeler dealer of not entirely uh, upstanding kind. And uh, I think Donald really wanted wanted to do that according to mary and and felt that that was the the proper behavior for someone who wanted to succeed in the world he couldn't understand any other way of succeeding in the world he had seen his brother go down by being kind of just a little too nice and having separate ambitions and and dividing himself from the father so donald went sort of whole hog to preserve, you know, to preserve himself if you want to be sympathetic or because he was that kind of creature if you don't want to be so sympathetic. And then came the Republican National Convention where almost all the all the Trumps were present. Some of them gave speeches. Some of them gave notable speeches. The most notable one really was 
Kimberly Guilfoyle, the girlfriend of Don Jr., remind us what her RNC speech was like. When you watch it, you realize that they probably gave it to her because she was most able to speak to the base without any, without any embarrassment or shame. And she didn't have to appeal to anyone else. And so she just went for it. She uh, shrieks anti-Semitic, homophobic, homophobic dog whistles, like her reference to cosmopolitan elites. I mean, a term we haven't heard since Stalin left office, basically. You know, it's not a term she grew up with. She she raved like Mussolini. She's She appeared in a red sheath that most reminded me of Mephistopheles when it didn't remind me of Kim Kardashian. And she just <laughs> went on a, a six and a half minute spew that was like, unlike anything else at what was a convention that was unlike anything else. So people began speculating that, well, Kimberly Guilfoyle seems to have some kind of ambitions to make it as an independent Republican voice, you know, speaking to the base. But then uh, The New Yorker published a devastating piece by Jane Mayer about Kimberly Guilfoyle and why she left Fox News. What did Jane Mayer have to say about that? Well, so if you looked at Kim's Wikipedia page, I don't know what it says now, but if you looked at it a, a while before the Jane Mayer piece came out, it said she left Fox News to work on the Trump campaign. But actually she was let go because uh, um, one of her assistants at Fox charged her with uh, sexual harassment, including some very bizarre behaviors. And what happened in the end was Fox reportedly paid Guilfoyle's assistant more than $4 million to stop her from bringing charges against Kimberly. So according to the New Yorker piece, may I go on, John? Because Please. It's a little <laughs> salacious in a family show, but I'm going to read it anyway. The New Yorker piece said that the assistant said she was frequently required to work at Guilfoyle's New York apartment while the Fox host displayed herself naked and was shown, and the girl was shown photographs of the genitalia of men with whom Guilfoyle had had sexual relations. That's in the New Yorker. The draft complaint also alleged that Guilfoyle spoke incessantly and luridly about her sex life and on one occasion demanded a massage of her bare thighs. It was that kind of career ending piece in, in a normal world. We can never say for sure. And then very late in the year, suddenly we learned that some another person, Lara Trump, was going to run for Senate in North Carolina in two years when a Republican seat uh, opens up. Who is Laura Trump? Who even knew about Laura Trump? Even even Donald Trump said to her once, oh, wait, like you're Eric's wife? I couldn't even pick you out of a lineup. I couldn't pick you out of a lineup. This is his daughter-in-law, the mother of his grandchildren. And he says, I couldn't pick her out of a lineup. She's um, 38. She's like a cookie cutter type of Trump female, which may be why he couldn't pick her out of a lineup. She looks like everybody else in the lineup. <laughs> um, she's kind of interesting. She was a, a pastry chef before she moved to CBS Inside Edition. You explained that career leap to me, John. I'm not really sure. And then she later came on to the Trump presidential campaign. She was already going out with Eric or no, she was already married to Eric. Um, and she did something. She hosted something called Real News Updates, which, of course, it's Trump world, which is like Orwell world. So if it says real news updates, you know, they're not real news. That's 
That's the clue. Um, and she was also a regular guest on Fox News. She essentially became a spokesperson for Trump. Well, it'll be pretty interesting if Laura Trump becomes the first person of the generation of the children to run for office, because we always thought Don Jr. was going to be the first. Or Ivanka. Have we forgotten Ivanka? Please. You would have thought that the blood children, since this is, of course, a man, Donald Trump Sr., who believes in blood and dynasty and uh, royalty and monarchy and authority, you would think that only the blood children would be eligible to inherit the mantle. But apparently, Laura Trump has a different idea about that. She's willing to inherit the mantle, even if it's not hers. Finally, last time you and I talked, I asked you whether Ivanka and Jared would actually be able to move back to Manhattan. Would they ever eat lunch in that town again, I asked. We have news updates about that. They're not going back to New York. <laughs> they're moving to Miami. Now, what's that going to be like? Well, first of all, they're not moving to a house. They bought a piece of land. So we don't know where they're going to stay between January 20th and when their giant, no doubt, McMansion on Billionaire's Row in Miami is built. Even if you're buying a $30 million lot on a private island with special security, you can't be sure you're going to build your house. You can't know that's what the future will bring. But that's a big, heavy investment that they're making in this piece of land. It's not exactly the kind of move that you want to make if you're going to then declare that you are the next leader of the people. Amy Willens. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.